We've been going through uh, this series on the Belgian Confession for over a year now. Um, and for the past uh, few Sundays in the evening service, we've been looking at uh, these latest articles on, uh, on what the church is. And so Article 27 was on the Holy Catholic Church, Article 28 on the obligations of church members, and then Article 29 we've spent the last two Sundays on, on the marks of the true church. And today we hear about the government of the church. We believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in his word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the word of God and to administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons along with the pastors to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their means. By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church, when such persons are elected, who are faithful, and are chosen according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we'll hear echoes of in the form uh, for ordination later on. Um, our scripture reading this evening to go along with the confession is from the book of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And we're going to start reading at verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter about Paul's, Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey through Asia Minor. Acts 14, starting at verse 21. As we prepare to read God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in these words, you give us everything that we need for faith in you and for life according to your will. We thank you that in these words, you reveal yourself to us and also show us who we are. And Lord, we pray now that as we read your word, you would send your Holy Spirit to us to open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, and open our hearts to everything that it is that you would have us see and hear and know and believe. Transform us, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 21. They, of course, starts with a pronoun. The antecedent to the pronoun is Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, Paul, sorry, Paul and Barnabas preached the good news in that city, the city of Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, 
strengthening the disciples, and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, for the past few weeks in the evening service as we continue our series on the Belgian Confession, we have been following a fictional couple named Carter and Susan who have recently moved to Kitchener and are church shopping. Pastor Carl introduced us to Carter and Susan a few weeks ago when he started teaching on uh, Article 29 of the Belgian Confession. And Carter and Susan are a young couple with two kids, and they've recently moved to Kitchener, and they are looking for a church. They're trying to find a community of believers that they can call their own. And Pastor Carl has shown us, through Article 29 of the Belgian Confession, that as Carter and Susan search for a church, they shouldn't just be looking at the quality of the nursery care, or the youth program, or the worship style, or the, what the church building looks like. Instead, Carter and Susan should be looking for what the Belgian Confession calls the marks of the true church. And there are three. The true preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments as commanded by God in his word, and the discipline of believers. In other words, Carter and Susan should be paying attention to what they see in church and to what they hear in church. Do they hear the gospel proclaimed from God's word? Do the sermons and liturgies and songs proclaim the mighty acts of God which are shared with us in the Bible? Does the pastor proclaim a gospel of grace, a gospel of forgiveness of sins in the blood of Jesus, a gospel which calls those who hear it to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Carter and Susan should also judge the church by what they see in worship and out of worship. Do they see the sacraments celebrated as Christ instructed? Do they see the gospel confirmed in the signs of water and bread and wine? Do they see the members of the church living lives of holiness, correcting those who do wrong, caring for the poor and the afflicted? These three things, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, the life of Christian discipleship, these are the marks of the true church. A church that proclaims Jesus as Lord should live according to how Jesus taught us to live. And if Carter and Susan choose a church that preaches the gospel, that celebrates the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and guides its members in true lives of Christian discipleship, they will do well, probably. But the teaching of the Belgian Confession on what the church is doesn't end with these three marks, 
And so I want to invite us to stay with Carter and Susan as they continue to discern what they are looking for in a church home, what they should look for in a church home. And today we're going to ask the question together with Carter and Susan, when you walk into a church and sit down in worship, who do you see? Who is in charge? How do they exercise their authority? Who leads the church? And how do they govern? 500 years ago, in the time of the Reformation, when the Belgic Confession was written, how the church governed became a very important question. One of the main reasons that the Reformation happened at all was because of abuse of power within the church. Pastors, priests, who lived openly sinful lives were not punished or disciplined. Bishops who oversaw the government of the church were also often political officials, princes and dukes and barons and kings, one foot in church government and one foot in civil government. Ordinary people in the pews were not involved in the election or the confirmation of church leaders. The congregation didn't call a pastor the way that we do in our church. A priest was simply assigned to a church. And perhaps the worst offense of all, at least in the minds of most people in the day, was that the leaders of the church seemed a lot more interested in money than in faith. They seemed more interested in people paying their dues than in people living lives of holiness. These abuses of authority were one of the main factors that led people to try and reform the church in the first place. And while calls for reform had gone up before, many times, way before, in the 16th century, things came to a tipping point. And those who called for the church to change its ways, like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Guido de Bray, who wrote the Belgic Confession, and others, were excommunicated from the church. They were kicked out of the church. And since so many priests and bishops were both civil government leaders as well as church leaders, these reformers were also persecuted by the government as criminals. And so in their minds, there was something seriously wrong with a church that could not only reject a call to reform, but through the government, persecute those who called the church to reform. And so they demanded change. And so the leaders of the Reformation turned to Scripture to try and figure out where things had gone so wrong. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, with its leadership structure, had a long and venerable history behind it, based on church tradition and the Word of God. And so to question that leadership structure, the Pope, the Cardinals, the Bishop, the Priests, the Deacons, to advocate for it to be changed, the reformers were asking for a big thing, and they needed a solid biblical foundation. And the trouble that they ran into a little bit is that the leadership of the early church, as we're shown in the New Testament, seems to have been a pretty complicated and nebulous thing. The Apostle Paul offers some pretty clear teaching on church leadership in his letters to Timothy and
and Titus in his letters to them about the roles of elders and deacons and ministers. And so this is kind of the structure that the Reformation Church settled on, elders, deacons, ministers. And it's a biblical structure, don't get me wrong. But it takes a while to get there because the book of Acts talks about apostles, talks about prophets, talks about evangelists, elders, deacons, ministers, preachers, teachers, even bishops. Sometimes the writers of the New Testament seem to use these terms interchangeably. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls a meeting of the elders of Ephesus. But then in his speech to them, he calls them bishops. He calls them overseers. So are bishops and elders different things, or are they the same thing? That's a question that they had to wrestle with. Preachers and evangelists and prophets and ministers are sometimes referred to interchangeably in the New Testament. And sometimes the writers of the New Testament use the words not as titles or offices, but simply for what they mean. And so, for example, in the Greek, apostle means a person who is sent. Evangelist means messenger. Deacon and minister both mean servant. Pastor means shepherd. And elder, elder means old person. And sometimes that's simply all they mean. But sometimes they mean more. Sometimes they teach us about the leadership of Christ's church. And so the reformers in, you know, 500 years ago, they went through the Bible very carefully and constructed a, what they thought was a better system of church government than what the Catholic Church had in place, one that was less prone to abuse, one in which officers were equal. That's a little complicated. But on some things, the New Testament is not complicated. On some things, the New Testament is clear. And the New Testament is clear that the Church of Christ should be led by those who are called by God to serve it. After Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus gives his authority to his disciples, to his apostles, to carry out the work of God on the earth. After Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles elect Matthias to serve as a 12th apostle after Judas. When there are clear injustices around issues of care for the poor in the church in Jerusalem, the apostles have an election for deacons in the church there, and the congregations in Jerusalem elect seven deacons to lead them. In our scripture reading this evening, as Paul and Barnabas travel through Asia Minor, they preach the gospel in every town. And then on their way back home, they go back through all those same towns and appoint elders to lead the new churches that have begun there. Most of Paul's letters throughout the New Testament are letters to elders and pastors, ministers in the churches that he started offering advice on pastoral questions, 
and issues of church leadership. And the focus of Paul's advice in these letters is on the issues raised here in Article 30 of the Belgian Confession. The leaders of the church are appointed as spiritual leaders, not worldly leaders. And because of that, they govern God's people in a spiritual manner, not in a worldly manner. The leaders of the church are in place to ensure that the gospel is preached, that the sacraments are celebrated faithfully according to God's word, that the people of God are encouraged and supported in living disciplined lives of faithfulness. And that is what the leaders of the church are called to do today. The church of Jesus Christ does not have a worldly government. We are not governed by a board of trustees. We are governed by a council of office bearers who are called by God and elected by God's people for terms of service. The government of the church should be concerned with spiritual things, not with worldly things, with the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and inspiring its members to live holy lives and care for the poor and afflicted. Everything else that we do as leaders in the church, we do in service to these three things, in service to the gospel, to the sacraments, and to disciplined Christian living. It is easy for us both as office bearers and as believers, to get overwhelmed by the busyness and the business of the world. We have families to care for, buildings and staff to manage, bills to pay, taxes to file, legal requirements that we must fulfill. And it can be very easy in the government of the church and also in our own lives to let these things take precedence and allow the things that should be of primary importance to become secondary. It can be easy for people like Carter and Susan to pay more attention to whether a church has an active nursery, an engaging youth program, a good worship band, or a well-kept building, than to whether they are receiving God's grace through the gospel, the sacraments, and the discipline of holy living. But our Lord calls us always to lift our minds to things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he rules over his church by pouring out his grace through the Holy Spirit. He calls us to confess our sins and be forgiven, to receive his grace in the preaching of the word, in the water, the bread, and the wine, in the, to live in the power of his spirit in everything that we do. When we elect leaders in the church who are faithful, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, sincere, and honest, we can trust the Spirit of God to work through them, to govern his church well. We can trust the Spirit of God, who endows those whom God has chosen as prophets, who call God's people to return to his work. We can trust the Spirit of God who ordains 
God's people, as priests who oversee our life and worship so that it may bring glory to God. We can trust the Spirit of God who ordains the leaders of the church as, as kings who care for God's people with justice and with mercy. In all of these things, faithful leaders of the church point us to the true prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ our Lord, who rules over his church with faithfulness and love. To him be the glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Lord our God, in the busyness of this world, we often get distracted. In the busyness of this world, we often consider the wrong things to be of primary importance. In the busyness of this world, we often lose sight of what it means to serve you in spirit and in truth, to offer our lives as living sacrifices for your sake. And so, O oh Lord our God, we pray that you would bless us with the peace that comes from your spirit. Still the busyness in our lives so that we may hear you with a still small voice so that we may see you in the small miracles that you work every day so that we may know you in the gift of your word bless us with leaders who point us always to you, away from the busyness and to the peace which you offer us by your Spirit. Bless us, O Lord, we pray.